0: Okay, so today we are taking a look at the Torah section called uh, Tetzaveh, And Tetzaveh means you shall command. It covers Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, through chapter 30, verse 10. We also picked up passage there in Ezekiel 43 and from Hebrews 13. And one of the key questions that we can ask is, you know, why are we here? Why are we at the tabernacle all the time? We keep going through this, and we keep going through the architectural descriptions of the tabernacle, but what is the point of it? Okay, it's great to have detailed descriptions of what all the components are of the tabernacle for the original construction of it. That was helpful, so we'd actually know what it was supposed to be designed like and so that you could build it originally but okay what is then each generation's interest in this architectural description why must that be something to keep in mind and from one generation to the next to the next to the next well part of that is what we see here in some passages that's We see it in our previous passage that we looked at in our Torah reading from Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9. Now, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as a pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So we see that the sanctuary this tabernacle is going to be a place where the lord is going to be dwelling amongst mankind that that was a desire heaven's desire was to dwell amongst mankind so thus this place was built for it so as we continue on further that's one aspect of the word well the word that's translated here pattern that comes from The Tavnit, and Tavnit, translated, means a pattern, a form, an image, a likeness, and it is thought to be derived from the Hebrew verb of bana, which means to build or to rebuild, and some examples that we have of it in its usage. Uh, one in particular, there's a passage in First Chronicles, chapter 28 verses 11 through 19. but an interesting passage is in Deuteronomy four verses 16 through 18, and it, it sets up where we are looking at with this particular passage and this discussion of this term. Now, starting back in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter four, "So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form." There's that word again, the timonah. On the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below. So we see in some of these terms that are used here as far as form goes, the temunah is... From that word of mean, which is a word that we see a lot in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter one talks about things created after their kind. And uh, that's sometimes you see, hear some, some scholars that will talk about the created kinds and refer to them as the bara mean. And bara means created, and it's a word that re- relates to God creating. Not just formed ara and mean, so God created from, and these are the things that are the sources for all of the creatures that are on the on the planet, so this form is coming from something, and that is hugely important for us to to keep in mind, because uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters have uh, gotten some wrong ideas about what the tabernacle was and what purpose it held the idea that it was a functional place of salvation in and of itself and that is a very interesting idea and something that we need to at least take a very concerted look at to have an answer well is this really a plan a that that plan A of salvation was the tabernacle, plan B of salvation is the Messiah. Is that what the message is that we should be getting out of this? Well, okay, thank you. Someone just, no. <laughs> all right. All right, we're done here. <laughs> so I'll just uh, finish for today. <laughs> okay, that was, that was a short one. <laughs> but rather we go on to Exodus chapter 29 verses 45 through 46, again we see it the same idea that we saw in Exodus 25. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So this why did he take Israel out of Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt? To dwell with them. So with this aspect of wanting to dwell with us, that is the key, the key purpose of the tabernacle. The key purpose is for God's presence to dwell among us. So... The purpose is, well, what is a part of all of this architecture that goes into it? And when we see the overview of the tabernacle, and this is an artist's rendition of the the tabernacle here, you see that there is the courtyard. We've talked about that in the previous Torah reading and went through great detail talking about the dimensions of it and what it's made of and what the... What the posts are made out of, and what the various little rings that even hold the the curtains onto the pillars around the edge of the tabernacle are about, so we have this architectural design, and it's a rectangle that we have in the original the original design of it, about this is fifty cubits, which in cubit again is. Roughly, it's uh, like an arm length thought to be between the elbow and the tip of the finger. And it roughly works out to either 18 to 20 inches, depending on uh, the decisions of whose arm is used in the figuring of it. But it roughly works out to about 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. So in grand scheme of things, it's not really that big when you see about this particular place and what goes on into it, the what is there in the front part of it is a gate. So what is the lesson of this? One way in. There is only one way in. There's no pole vaulting over the sides. There's no digging underneath it to go tunnel into it. No, there is one way in towards the presence of God. Lesson. Altar. So when you get in the door, what do you see? The altar. That's what you see with stuff going up on it. The things that must be burned up. And the strange part of that is that things described of burning flesh as a soothing aroma going up before the Lord. Now, what was the other thing we heard was a soothing aroma? We heard it in this particular passage today. The prayers of the saints, well, where were they coming up from? The altar of incense, which is right before the veil. So we've got two places that there is a soothing aroma going up from. One place is the the gigantic barbecue grill that's at the front door, And the problem is, is that it's not just choice cuts of meat that are up there. It's everything. gets up there to be burned off, except for things that are hauled off outside the camp to be burned up. And those are for particular offerings. And those particular offerings that we saw in this passage, what do those things do? The sin offering, those things were for putting the tabernacle and the priesthood into business so what does that teach you that you need a startup sequence for the tabernacle the tabernacle needs something to start it it is not something that has something in and of itself it has to be given glory it has to have glory bestowed to it So that should be a lesson. And the priesthood need to be, they need to have the blood on their earlobe. And we mentioned this before, earlobe, thumb, toe, all on the right side. Those are all of the, for the majority of people in the world, that is the business side of it, the right side. So your right arm for most people is the dominant one. And for most people, you're going to be, On the right side, where is the dominant side of things. So your right ear, your right thumb. So what you hear, what you do, where you walk, all of those things have to be sanctified. So that's a lesson to the priesthood, that something has to make you holy and something has to make what you hear holy, what you do holy, where you go and what places that you travel all that needs to be holy in the process then there is the laver or the basically the basin that you wash in and you're washing what what are they washing the the priest before they go in hands and feet so that's one of those things that where you've walked where you've walked has to be washed what you've done has to be washed. So, priesthood, where you've gone and the things that you've in embarked upon, those things have to be cleaned. You can't just think of yourself as being fine in and of itself. So, uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, so, in Ezekiel, yeah, Ezekiel's uh, vision, um, they explained it clean, between, Yes. Did, I, did they wash it, bring in the water, scrub it, here come the goats, clean it up first.
1: I, I got to admit, I didn't quite get that. Yeah. Or they just go from blood to blood.
0: That is that is talking about a situation where you're having a mass volume of things. And we get some pictures of what things were like in the first century when you were having millions of pilgrims coming in for the three uh, pilgrimage festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Uh, so you've got Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So that a lot of things going on there, and especially for Passover with the lambs. And with the lambs, you've got to move those through in a very short window of time. In that afternoon, there on the fourteenth day of the first month of Israel's calendar. So, when you see some of the descriptions, and some of them are passed down to us from historians such as uh, Josephus, etc., of what was going on at that particular time to move them through to Alex's uh, discussion, it was all hands on deck with the priesthood to make that work because lots of people coming through, you've got to move it through without making the house of God turn into a, to put it, Bluntly, toxic waste dump. Yes. So, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. I see where it's cleanse it 25, maybe. You are to cleanse it. Yes.
1: So, didn't give a lot of detail on what the cleansing was, but okay, to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. Yes. So, you've got it. Okay. So, it was was cleaned up somewhat. Well, somehow. The thing, though, is, is
0: that this is also talking about cleansing things, and you'll see this a big time in the book of Leviticus things need to be cleansed with blood. you're like, cleansed with blood? That sounds strange because anybody who's done any work around any sort of things where blood is involved, it doesn't clean things at all. And if you let it sit, what problem do you then have? Decay, flies, not only getting the stain off, is, becomes a problematic thing as many people who um, like to commit crimes have discovered that is, blood is a difficult thing to wipe away easily. So in that process of it, that's another lesson for us. Things need to be cleansed with blood. So death of something is bringing cleansing so that should be now bringing something, a little bells going off in your head. Uh, yes, uh, Carrie, you've got a comment or a question there.
1: I'm Just thinking about that, um, in Ezekiel, it's actually two things that it says it's doing. It says it's cleansing and it's covering, which is the hard, yes. like kippurim. Mm-hmm. And talking about how blood is so hard to clean off, it's like, oh, having a film on there brings new meaning to that, to cover.
0: Yes, so, a cover on it. So a cleansing cover, which seems to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? Because how could something be cleansed if it's covering it? Hmm. A very interesting thing, which when we get to the time of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, you see what happens in that process, covering and removing huh okay and thus it's not until things are removed that they are totally cleansed so that we get a picture and a picture of what is actually happening with the tabernacle that something bigger is going on than just the things that are actually going on there physically because when you were to look at what is physically happening inside the tabernacle you're like, oh, this, this doesn't seem like it is accomplishing what it's supposed to be doing on the outset, covering and cleansing. Because the blood is not really going to do that. It is going to cover, but how is it going to cleanse? So as we move on further, we take a look here, and since we've been talking about Ezekiel so much, just a one little thought here of this idea of separation. And one of the things that we see with separation is that just like at Sinai, we see the levels of separation. We're going to see this expand and expand and expand as we get toward Ezekiel's temple. Now at Sinai, what did we see when they got up to the mountain in Exodus 19? They got up to the mountain they were to put what around the mountain? Barriers. They put a barrier up there just so people just can't up, go up to go see the Lord, have a look-see, because what was happening at the top of the mountain? Thunder, lightning, you got this cloud, looks like it's on fire. It's, wow, what a spectacular sight. And it's just like today, if something spectacular happens, an explosion or something unusual like a, a racehorse running down an interstate, then people suddenly take notice and they want to stop and take a look at it and get closer and figure out what's going on. The Lord is saying, hey, this is not a just an everyday spectacle here that is happening. This is actually the presence of the creator of heaven and earth here. So be aware of that. So thus, when you see with the mountain that there is levels that – The people could go only up to the base of it, that there were certain people, we saw in one of our previous Torah readings, where the elders and the priesthood and uh, Yehoshua, that they were able to go up and have a meal with the creator of heaven and earth, but not go up any further. They couldn't follow up Moshe up to the top of the mountain when he went up into the cloud. So in a similar way, you see in the tabernacle that Things could happen around the outside in the courtyard, but not up into the holy place or the most holy place. So thus you see like the top of the mountain is very analogous to the most holy place of the tabernacle. And should it be a surprise? He says, build this like you saw wire on the mountain, the pattern shown to you, Moses, up on the mountain. Take what you've seen there And now you're going to make a portable dwelling place for the Lord. So thus, it should be no surprise that the tabernacle should look just like that and look like the mountain. So, if we were to then go looking on further with this particular passage when we go into Ezekiel 43, verses 10 through 27, one of the things that we should have seen at the outset of it is and it's a very strange statement that's put in there. It's it's like listen to the design here and weep. I mean, how many times have you taken a look at architectural plans and started bawling? Have you been, you know, drawn to tears by, by looking at a schematic of something? I mean I mean Alex probably probably you started weeping when you when you looked at the uh at the plans and realized it wasn't built like that. <laughs> that might cause someone to start weeping. You know, when they when they get the as built and they're like, uh this doesn't look like it's supposed to. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> Should have been built. <laughs> Should have been built, yes, those plans. But in a sense that's what the, the vision here is getting, is that here with, remember, Ezekiel is a prophet that is bridging that before the exiles, just before the exiles, and then after the exiles. So he is one that is talking to, to a generation, hey, the end of the, the, the temple is coming. The end of Jerusalem here is coming. Be aware and understand why it's coming. Okay, so the end has come. Now, what happens next? What happens next? And also for the plan of when the return of the people, just like it was foretold to Moses when we get to the latter chapters of Deuteronomy, there is the foretelling that there is going to be the return of the people after their divine time out the devastation of the exiles there will be a return and the prophet Yomariahu, you know, jeremiah also prophesied that there would be this return and even set a time period for it 70 years something that you see the prophet daniel is reflecting upon hey this these 70 years are getting ready to end okay well now what So, Ezekiel is prophesying for the now what, but it is beyond just the what happens after just the return. He's also looking out into the future, and it's something that you see often with the prophets. It's what's happening now at the time of the prophet himself, and then also what is the not yet, things for the distant future. We see that with a lot of messianic prophecies are like that. They have things that bear in in time with the particular prophet that the prophet is writing to, and also for the things that happen way on down the road. So that that has ended up perplexing a lot of of commentators over the years. It's like, well, what are these prophecies actually getting at? Are they They seem like they're talking about Israel, but then they also seem to be not talking about Israel, something far bigger and grander than Israel. And we see that even with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, one of the grandest prophecies of the Messiah's coming. Things that look like this servant of the Lord very similar to other prophecies of the servant of the Lord, a blending of Israel and something grander. But then you see, this is something even grander than the previous prophecies of the servant of the Lord. Because this is going, this servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is going to bear what? The iniquities, bear their afflictions, to bear the crushing of heaven for the sake of Israel. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Someone who is crushed for Israel and also afflicted and even despised by the brothers, despised by the brothers. So very interesting that what did we see with the descriptions of the high priest's clothing? Remember those, he had those, those two onyx stones, those you know, black, a kind of semi-precious uh, stone there on the shoulders, inscribed with what? Twelve tribes spread equally. Six on one, six on the other. And that, it doesn't leave us guessing what that was for. It says for what? That you would bear them. Bear the tribes, bear the tribes, you know, like if you've had a backpack on, you know, that if you've got a weight on, it weighs down on your shoulders and you carry it. So thus that burden of Israel is being carried into the presence of God by the high priest. So when we look at Ezekiel 43, just the description of this should make us weep well, that's interesting. So if we were just to look at the timeline of the temples and tabernacles as they've gone over through history, we've seen that there are the times of the tabernacle. They're starting from the time of when Moses was commissioning it, just like what we are reading here today. We're in the midst of the commissioning documents for the tabernacle, talking about what is to go on there What, how it's to be built how it's to be put into service and then you see the progression of it going into a temple the temple being built solomon's temple and solomon's temple you know roughly about 500 years or so so then you see the time of the destruction Of Jerusalem, there in about 586, where Babylon finally comes in and levels Jerusalem and also takes off all of the items that are in the the tabernacle. And then you see that time that's prophesied there with Jeremiah 70 years until you have the restoration that this commission under a different emperor so babylon came in destroyed jerusalem then you see a couple of empires later you see then the a different emperor cyrus one of the cyruses comes along and commissions hey go rebuild it that's that's very strange to have the commissioning of a temple to a different deity, a different deity because, you know, the Persians, as we know, they were (laughs) also had their own pantheon, just like the Babylonians did. And just like the Canaanites did, had their own pantheon of different deities, but then to commission the rebuilding, not only of the walls of Jerusalem but also that the temple of Jerusalem so that it gets rebuilt but it gets rebuilt and as you see through Ezra and Nehemiah that that one that is built is doesn't have the same glory as it was under Solomon but then later on that was around up to for about 500 years until roughly about uh, you know, 20 BC, where Herod started. Um, Herod the Great started his renovation campaign with uh, a lot of contributions from from Rome. Yes, Rome uh, made some some contributions to it. But it, in between, there was the incidents that happened with the Abomination of Desolation during the time of when the Seleucid Greek Empire had reign over the area so that was in between temple was rebuilt to a certain degree as in service but then put out of service again by a emperor that said unlike cyrus it said hey go build this temple here to a different deity but the seleucid said no no deity except me the emperor so, banning the worship of of uh, that Israel's um, worship there in study of the Torah, that was banned, put out of action. So when we then look to the time period, we're uh, stepping back a little bit to the first temple, the Temple of Solomon. It was like okay, we 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 saw. We saw the construction of the tabernacle, kind of small on the grand scheme of things. And then we go to the Temple of Solomon. Wow, it's got an upgrade. It's a lot bigger. It's so much so that they kept the most holy place, the, uh, the Kadosh kodeshim. That area where the holy of holies is, with the te- the ark of the testimony, is the same dimensions, but they had to make it in a smaller building within a building because they had made the holy place so much bigger, and they put all, all of the the cherubim when they talked about on the curtains of the of the uh, holy place of the tabernacle. Well, these were engraved upon the walls, so. Definitely a much grander picture of the building. And then you had the storehouses that were around the outsides of Solomon's temple. Uh, quite an amazing thing. And then with the two gigantic bronze pillars right at the, at the front of it. So instead of those uh, ones that you see, the smaller pillars that were there in the tabernacle, here are these gigantic bronze pillars that were there at the front end of the, that temple. But when we compare, we we just, we saw some of the dimensions of these temples. Look at the comparison of this. This is a comparison of, uh, you know, for those of you, uh, Lee and Diane and Pamela who are calling on the phone. This is a size comparison of the different temples and tabernacles throughout time. So you compare like the a standard American football field, which is three hundred and sixty feet long and about 160 feet wide so the tabernacle of israel could easily fit at least maybe four of those inside of a standard american football field solomon's temple it take up about two-thirds of that of a american football field then you got herod's temple with the platform that went out around the edges of it and then when you extend the courtyard and then the colonnade around the edges of it it was gigantic it's like about almost four times the size three to four times the size of an american football field And then when you look at ezekiel's temple that one works out to be about 750 feet square so 750 feet on one side 750 feet on the other side so you can fit a lot of football fields inside that area but The interesting thing to note is uh, the architecture of it. What do you notice of Ezekiel's temple? It is square, not rectangular like the other ones, like the original tabernacle, like the Solomon's temple, and even Herod's temple kept the same kind of aspect ratio going on there. But it's square, but where is the altar Usually the altar is like you you come in through the door and then you encounter the altar, which is telling you something. But with Ezekiel's temple, it is smack dab right in the middle of the square temple area. And the th- three gateways that go into it all point to the altar. So you're like, wow, this, this picture of it has now expanded. And you see that this picture of the temple of Ezekiel is for what period of time? The future, the time of the day of the Lord. So with the day of the Lord... What do we see with a lot of the prophecies of the day of the Lord? I think like is Zechariah 14. Dark. Darkness, okay. So after all of the distress of you know you had Israel basically almost coming to an end if it wasn't for the Lord's intervention. Then they say, well, the Lord establishes his presence there on Mount Zion. Then what? All the nations then go up. They go up to worship the Lord you know, during the festival of tabernacles, during Sukkot. All of the nations go up and flow into it then. So one of the other distinctions that you see in this particular passage of Ezekiel is that the whole mountaintop is now a holy area see before it was like the place the dwelling place of the lord was considered like a an embassy and indeed it is and you see that the apostle paul reflects upon that about we being temples of the spirit of god and that we are ambassadors so We're like functioning like mobile embassies, and the dwelling place of God is like the embassies of heaven on earth. So, with this particular place, the territory that is the land that belongs to the sovereign, the creator of heaven and earth, is now no longer just one little place it is now expanded, expanded, expanded outward. So it is a much bigger place. So thus, the way in has already been made. So the one way in of the previous temple's tabernacle, that's already been established. Because who has come to reestablish this particular temple? The Messiah, yes. Yeshua has come to establish this. So the way has already been made. So now it's just come on in. And the focus then is to the altar, the thing which goes up. And that picture of the altar has been always what it has been to picturing back to the image and the original shown to Moses up on the mountain. So, we go on a little bit further to the passage that we were looking at in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 through 16, where it mentions, we have an altar. We have an altar that those who were serving there in the temple tabernacle, they didn't have access to this particular altar, a different kind of altar. And the admonition is to let us then go out to him outside the camp. So let's look at these passages a little bit further here. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, it says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. So we had just read that earlier about this about the commissioning of the the commissioning of the items in the in the tabernacle and the commissioning of the priesthood that these items especially some particular items were the sin offering those could not be just burned up they had to be taken outside the camp so again removal Removal and consumption—that that which goes up. So let's look at this a little bit further. Some passages that reflect on this, this altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. A couple of passages that and shed some light on this are Leviticus chapter seven, verses five through seven, and First Corinthians chapter ten verses 14 through 22 so let's look at the first one leviticus 7 verses 5 through 7 the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the lord it is a guilt offering every male among the priests may eat of it it shall be eaten in a holy place it is most holy the guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is law, one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. So one of these things that we see with these particular guilt and the sin offerings is consumption, but parts of it then removed and burned up. So these are things that are not to be treated as just junk garbage. So when you are eating of them, you have to remember. Okay, I am participating and realizing that this is relating to something that is very special, very set apart. So we are made, being coming part of something that is set apart from the world. So thus we eat these things. This is not just you know like grabbing a hamburger somewhere. This is you are participating in something that is a part of heaven's work on earth. And that's something for the priesthood to remember. Remember for themselves, okay, you are going to be sustained from the altar here. But remember who you work for. Remember who your boss is. The high priest, he's not the boss. He made direct things, he leads things, but he is not the boss, which is very different when the ancient Near East of the other cultures of the time period. Because you look in historical records, who is the boss of a lot of cultures, ancient Near East? The priesthood is. And when we talk about that we have the words of God, that is hugely important because Without that, it can be whatever the priesthood says it is. And you know, if you go back and you look at some of the re- the writings of ancient Babylon and ancient Akkadia, they have writings from the priesthood, but the stories differ. Every Almost every tablet that they'll bring up has a different account of Gilgamesh or something like that. The stories are different. I mean, imagine that you know you you pick up one copy of the bible and it says something completely different from another copy of the bible that would be hugely uh problematic so thus you're dependent on whom to tell you what to believe the priesthood if living in that kind of a culture you are highly dependent upon the priesthood to tell you what you should believe uh yes uh, Christine go ahead
1: I was listening to um, a story about some scrolls, and they were saying that there were some scrolls that were discovered of the book of Jeremiah, Mm. and that they found um, there were two that were written on sheep. You know, they did a DNA fragmentation, and then two were written on cow hides, and that they had four different, or uh, yeah, four different, stories within them and i'm wondering if it's that was the first time i've ever heard that Hmm. and i'm just this is the first time i've ever heard anybody expound like you are that can you imagine if we had four different types of stories yeah yeah,
0: and you you do also see some of that in the in the dead sea scrolls um are some different versions of stories of things and and that was one of the, the key aspects of it. Is what is legend that is coming into the case of it, and that's what you have with some of the um, you call it, so some of the intertestamental writings that you'll have that are either attributed to some figures like Enoch or, you know, or of Jubilees, especially where they'll ostensibly be related to something related to the Bible. But then when you go back and you're saying, oh, there's are different renditions of things that you have in other parts of the Bible. So that's why you have some of these books that go, "Well, why didn't they end up into the Canon is because they were talking a different story, having different details, different accounts and using, using vocabulary that's much later than the time period that it was supposedly referring to, you know, like, yeah, like the book of Enoch. Supposedly it's an ancient book, but the language is modern-ish. Uh, it's like still BC, but it's a lot later than 14, 1500 BC, which is the the time period where you would think that it would be coming from. Like the book of Job... The language there is ancient. It is a very difficult book. When you see, if you look in some of the margin notes, you'll see a lot of margin notes in there because they're like, ah, we kind of don't know what this should be translated like. So you've got to go with the Septuagint rendition of it, and for some very ancient uh, views on what these Hebrew words are, because they are very, very old, and you don't see a lot of examples of them. Now that is an example. Okay. That one is very old. You, you can put that in there. But a book like Jubilees or some of the uh, books of Enoch, you look at, nah, that's like what we see around the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls period. So it's in the 300 to 100 BC or even up to zero, that, that kind of a period. So that's, that's what makes things kind of fun makes things kind of fun. The next passage to take a look at here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, so just to stop there, that gives us a context for these things. Uh, Paul, when he's writing, always oh, good to have context. The more context with Paul, the better. Yes. <laughs> so continuing on. I speak as to wise men, you judge what i say is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of christ is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of christ since there is one bread we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread look at the nation israel are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar what do i mean there that the things sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So what you see here is the common problem that ancient Israel had was actually trying to partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. That was a big problem throughout a lot of Israel's history. We get that big 50-cent word syncretism in there, taking the practices of the nations, the practices, you know, get a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Asherah, kind of, put them in the spiritual blender, put it on liquefy and have a nice spiritual smoothie. Now, that is not that is not the, the instruction. In fact, when we get into Deuteronomy, we see the explicit instructions, don't do that. <laughs> what you see, those fun practices out of the nations, don't do that. Don't bring them in because you think, oh, they're spiritual. They're very uplifting. No, don't do that. So what we see here with this particular thing and with that passage that we just saw in the pre- in the previous part about, that the those who eat the sacrifices are sharers in the altar. So you, priesthood, when you're eating from the things that have been offered there with the altar, you are participating with the people coming in the door. You're all participating together. Together as this offering up of ourselves offering up of the innocent for us to cover us to take away our sins transgressions and iniquities we are participating with that so thus when we get back to our passage here in Hebrews chapter 13 there in verse 10 where it talks about being burned outside the camp that's one of the things that we see is that making this dwelling place pattern and the people who approach it holy requires a massive separation from the world now we saw that earlier when we were talking about the construction of the tabernacle so just like at sinai just like with the tabernacle you just put pillars up around the base of the mountain so people just don't go running up in there, put a curtain around the outside of the tabernacle so people just don't go for a little looky-loo into the Holy of Holies. And when we get into Leviticus, we see that the priesthood needed that reminder as well with uh, two sons of Aharon himself went up in flames because they did not remember who they worked for and they thought that they were positioned was something that gained them access. So when we get back to our discussion here in, in um, Hebrews chapter 13, we see that this separation that we have from the rest of the world, and Leviticus 4, verse 21, it says, Then he is to bring the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. So when we get to Leviticus, we'll see that you have these discussions for the first seven chapters there. are Here are all the offerings, and then here are how you do the offerings. And then chapter 7 is, okay, we're going to consecrate the priesthood what we had seen a shadow of here in our particular passage we looked at here today, okay, now we're going to put it all into action now and make it forward. So in amongst those instructions of how to put things into action, we're talking about this sin offering for the whole assembly. So the whole assembly had to be made separate. And that sin for the whole assembly had to be taken outside, it was all put on this animal, taken outside of the camp and burned. And then we see another description there in Leviticus sixteen, which is the chapter about what? Day of Atonement. So this is the ultimate removal of sins, transgressions, iniquities from not only the high priests, but also from the people. So there in Leviticus 16, verses 27 and 28. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. And they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward, he shall come into the camp. So... You're saying that this is like a toxic waste cleanup that they are even the people involved with taking the refuse outside and burning it all up. They even need to be cleansed. Anyone who had any contact with this at all had to be cleansed. And when we see in another passage, we'll get to about the red heifer. That particular passage there in the book of Numbers, when it talks about the red heifer, That's another conundrum that should be telling the priesthood that the tabernacle in and of itself is not something that actually brings the efficacious thing because the red heifer then is required to do what? To sanctify the high priest and the tabernacle itself and the priesthood to put them into operation. And to also have that water of purification for the certain things, the contact with the dead, etc. So another reminder that it's not just the tabernacle that's doing something. There is something outside of it that has to put it into operation. Something outside of it that has to put it into operation. So thus, when we get back to our in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, about then, okay, burned outside the camp. So then let us go out to him. Well, that's interesting. Well, you would think this is the most toxic thing ever. We've just been seeing passages from the Torah that say, hey, the worst stuff that's involved there, and you take it outside, you think garbage dump, it's just worthless. No, it is the most precious thing ever. But it has to be outside, away from the community. It has to take what it is getting rid of outside of the community. But that is where we should gravitate to go for the true source of the removal of everything. You know, everybody's thinking, hey, everything is happening there in the tabernacle. No, it's the thing that is removing everything. That is the focus of it. Because if you want to get to the presence of God, which is in the tabernacle, in the temple, you got to go to the thing that removes it to even get access in there. Because if you are not there looking for heaven's removal of everything, and you just waltz in there thinking that you and of yourself are doing something, then look out. (laughs) Look out. You're like, you know, walking into a radioactive chamber with no protective suit on. That's not a good idea. So we see in a couple passages here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 16. Therefore Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So, you see that the sanctifying, the making them holy, making them separate, was done ultimately through the blood of the Messiah. That is what actually is the removal, the covering. Covering and removal is through the Messiah. It is not what happens inside the tabernacle. All of those are pictures of of what the Messiah is doing. So Messiah is not a bolt-on to the temple. It's not a bolt-on to the Torah. It is the essence of it. So that's when you see references both in the Gospels, when it talks about um, when Yeshua appeared to two of those students on the road to Emmaus, and he was talking with them, about all these things and then started revealing from the beginning the things concerning himself there was a lot to reveal and to talk about the things that are concerning the messiah because as we've been going through genesis and now going through exodus we've seen that this picture all the way from the garden and the two trees going through noah going through abraham Going through his sons to Yaakov, and then going through Yosef, and then it's going to go through Yehuda as being the selected one, the whole deceptor. That this message that keeps going through there is all about one who was to come. That Israel was not to be something in and of itself. And we see it re- repeatedly throughout the Torah, and also we see it like in passages like Ezekiel 36. It's not because of how righteous you are, Israel, how holy you are, Israel. It's the one who makes you holy. It's the one who makes you righteous. That is the ultimate. That's what gives Israel purpose. Because, you know, you think about an organization that loses focus on why it exists. You've probably maybe been a, a part of an organization like that. If they lose focus on it, what is their mission anymore yeah you know, if you have the mission statement okay well a mission statement is great but if you actually don't internalize that and say that is us that is should be directing us every step we take well then you start losing it over time you start losing your perspective and we see it happening day by day they talk about you know the Toxic capitalism. Well, yes, if you lose sight of what Adam Smith said in his first book about capitalism, it's like you need to look for the advantage that you can provide to other people on moral sentiments. You have to have moral sentiments because then otherwise it is just going to be as, you know, Karl Marx caricatured it as capitalizing on other people looking for weaknesses is you know, call it uh, merchant darwinism but no if you are actually looking out for the good of other people people talk about a win-win sort of thing well actually looking out for the good that you can provide and one of my colleagues worked in the in the sales department and he was always saying you know The way that I sell is to just make sure that my clients get the ultimate of what they need. You know, I'm not trying to push something on them. I find out what is it that you actually need. And since we're in the publishing business, they're like, you need to get the word out. You need to let people know what it is you do and why it's distinctive or this or that. So, okay, now that I know what you need, All right, how do I make your need come to fulfillment? So you see the people's needs, you fill the people's needs. You're not trying to push something, hoodwink them, rob from them, throw a curveball at them, claiming it's something and giving them garbage. No, that's a complete undermining of the moral sentiments. In a similar way, you see the things with with the tabernacle when... The priesthood or the people lose sight of what the mission of Israel is. What is the mission of Israel? You see, we saw that in Exodus 19. It is to be a nation of priests, a nation of priests. We don't just delegate that to the family of Aharon. Okay, that that came later, the specialization. But the goal of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests as the apostle peter puts it a royal priesthood the king has said i need people to be priests and what do priests do they serve in what you would say the the tabernacle pattern you have a thing (laughs) at the barbecue (laughs) you have the process of bringing people toward the presence of god well how do they know they need to come Somebody needs to tell them. They might start ringing bells about things that the prophets talk about. How would they hear? Unless somebody did what? Unless somebody tells them. So that's the mission of the priesthood. Not just to sit here in this building and we hope they show up. No, it is to say, come. It's almost like good news. We've got some good news to share. Almost like that. Yeah, almost, almost like you got good news to share. Uh, yes, uh, Christine, go ahead, please.
1: So on its basic level, this is the first. Hebrews has always been a little bit of an anomaly for me, right? Um, this is the first time I've ever read that, about Yeshua being outside the camp in that toxic. Is there a pattern of that anywhere else?
0: The Torah is the pattern of it.
1: In with Yom Kippurim, in terms of well, the atonement with, going.
0: Yes, oh. well, with yeah, you know, said talking about with uh, with Calvary, with going outside to the place of the skull where the where the crucifixion was. But the Torah pattern is that for things that are truly cleaning up, they're doing the doing the covering and the removal. You've got the, the putting it into place with the priesthood and the items in it. And then with the annual Day of Atonement, the covering and the removal, each of these things is telling you this is essential to what is going on here, but it creates such a toxic thing to the rest of the community, it must be removed from it. But that is the most precious thing that is going on. But it has to then be Taken out of the community. It's not like we, the community, are taking our things over here and getting rid of it. No. The offerings have to do that. They have to bring their removal. The offering has to die or it has to remove. And that was the lesson of Yom Kippur. One goat is for the covering, one goat is for removal put the blood of one onto the other and send it away. That message saying, hey, this somebody else has to do this to cover and to remove. So thus, when you're talking about the pattern shown on the mountain, rather than Messiah being a bolt on, it is a part of the pattern. So thus, when you see in Hebrews where it talks about these are shadows but the body is messiah it's not a mere shadow and thankfully some translators have put that mirror uh, m-e-r-e into italics saying hey we've inserted this here because we think it goes here so it's not like it is a little or a trifle thing it is essential here that the shadow is showing where the body is, the substance. What? Where is the substance of the pattern? So thus, when we see the pattern of the tabernacle, what is all of the substance of this about? And one of the things of the letter of Hebrews is it really shows what the substance of the tabernacle is about. Because otherwise, the Day of Atonement is a big, big mystery. And you know, if you see some of the rabbinical writings about the Day of Atonement, there's a lot of ideas about it, but they also just have to say, well, okay, we decided that we're going to go with this particular approach of prayers being efficacious for the removal. Now again, prayers, this is not a straw man here, prayers are seen in Judaism as being efficacious of it, but it's still kind of missing the point while seeing the point. The point is is that yes, you offer up the prayers. So you're saying the direction, God is the one who does it. But to see the picture of, well, what was that whole ceremony actually pointing toward for that removal? That being the key part that can get missed on this. And even our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah can miss this as well. With You can see with the example of the translator's little insertion of mirror into it, that, that this is a shadow. It's something, it's okay, it was good for that particular time. Now the Messiah is here. We can you know, cast, cast it aside or just refer to it tangentially in stories or something like that, rather than saying, If you want to understand the Gospels, you need to understand the Torah and the prophets and the writings to see where all that is pointing. Because you can see some of the crises of uh, faith that are happening in the body of Messiah today where you have crises of things that are spilling over from the world's ideas about this and that without a grounding in, well, what do these things mean? What is the grounding of how God created people? That is a significant grounding in there. And if you just say, well, I'm going to take this little part, but the rest of those things, I'll just leave those behind. Well, then you start saying, well, if I left all this behind, why don't I leave that behind too? The part that I consider to be essential. So, if I take certain parts of the Ten Commandments as being things I want to keep, why should I keep those if I've tossed out other ones or other parts of the Torah that I think are just now nailed to the cross? So thus, when you see that the Messiah is essential in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is essential in knowing what the Messiah is and reflecting on what he's done. Thus, when you see in the prophets, when it says Ezekiel's temple is going to be rebuilt, people are like, well, wait a minute. Isn't that going backwards and and throwing out Messiah? No, it's all about Messiah. It always has been about the Messiah from the very beginning of it, which is why when it says, hey, pay attention to the architecture here is this is ezekiel was a priest he knew the differences of the architecture here just like we see the schematic whoa wait a minute the architecture of this temple is quite different it's square and it's got three doors and it's got the altar smack dab in the center of it like everything is pointing toward the altar huh what is going on here the pattern of the temple and the and the tabernacles before it have all been about what was shown to Moses on the mountain. Thus, when the temple is out of commission, like it has been several times in Israel's history, and for, when you look at it, a lot of the same reasons, you know, we put it in the general bucket of, as it's mentioned in the prophet Daniel, the abomination of desolation. Well, that's happened several times in Israel's history. Happened once in Shiloh when the tabernacle was there. Why did that happen? Remember the priesthood and how they were behaving leading up to that time of the desolation of the tabernacle? (laughs) Yes, Eli and his sons, and you know, uh, it was not only backsliding, but falling over backwards, yes, to his death. But you could see the rot that was happening within the priesthood. To, the rot was happening within the priesthood to the point that what? What was the job of the priesthood again? To do what? To bring the people toward God, to bring their offerings toward God. Well, what were the priesthood doing with their behavior? The people were not coming to. They were staying away. I mean, the women got the message. uh, No, I'm not going anywhere near the the doorway of that because, yeah, uh, it's turned into a, a, yeah, don't want to go there. Well, that's completely opposite of what the job is supposed to be for the priesthood. So then what the Lord said, well, if you've left me, well, I'm going to leave this place here. I want to dwell there, but you're like, uh, no, you need to be taught the lesson that, hey, this is a place where people who are living in a world that is been separated from the Messiah, from the creator of heaven and earth, have to learn how to approach and why they even should want to approach the creator of heaven and earth. And when the priesthood falls down in that basic task, then what now have you done? You're like, what's going on there in Israel is no different than what's going on there in Canaan or what's going on in anywhere else. So why should I care about this one that they said is the God of Israel? No different from any of the other ones that you see in surrounding nations. Well, the problem is is that You see that the lifeline had gone out to a lot of people in different nations over time. You see examples of it with uh, the see it in Ruth, where she was one who decided to say, Hey, your God is my God, your people will be my people. We see it with Rahab or Rahab there at Jericho. It says, hey, we heard about what happened (laughs) with the Red Sea crossing and and other things like that, what happened to the army of Mitzrayim. So we heard about all that, and that was decades before. That was decades before. That's like someone bringing something up. Yeah, about something happened in the 60s. Wow. Yeah, we heard about what happened then. And uh, we, we still know... We still know about it, and we're saying, yeah, because of what we heard about happening, we are putting our trust in the God of Israel. But when the servants of the God of Israel make the name, that should start ringing some bells here, make the name of the creator of heaven and earth, no different from any of the others, what is the term for that? It's called blasphemy, to make that which is separate, common, to make it no different, or to take the name of the Lord and make it common or in vain, to make it of nothing, no value, no specific value at all. So thus, that's something that we see with the mission of the temple and the tabernacle, all about being what the messiah is doing so the messiah is not the okay well that didn't work so we're going to try something else here no this is what this has all been yeah plan a it's been plan a all the time or you could say plan m it's been plan m all the way from the beginning so that's when we see in this particular uh, picture in hebrews chapter 13 We can see where the trajectory is of let us go out to him i mean you think about if you were to put this into the into the torah perspective let us go out to the tabernacle's waste dump that is where we want to be well that takes a special perspective to know what is going on why that is so efficacious for it that you know, like the red heifer, which also factors into the book of Hebrews several chapters earlier, it's like, okay, you think the ashes of the red heifer, that does something great? Well, then how much more? Then that's saying, yeah. But if you read in the Torah and when we get to it, you'll see, yeah, the, the red heifer is almost like uh, like radioactive waste because of how other it is. But it is other- yet so unbelievably special and uh you could say it is the saving the the picture of it is it is that which saves you from things contact with the dead and putting the the priesthood and the and the tabernacle into operation so closing things out here in hebrews chapter 13 We see a similar expression here about the sacrifice that, okay, let us go out to him. Okay, outside of the camp. So you get the picture of Messiah outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And that being the most precious thing that could possibly ever happen to Israel and indeed the whole world. So let us go out. And then that we can also be partakers in that burning up as well. When we talk about being in the Messiah, that we die in the Messiah, and then we are born again with the Messiah brought to life and that we live with the Messiah. That's what these aspects are talking about with this. So like with, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does that sound like to you, especially the acceptable to God, the holy sacrifice acceptable to God? How do we know what is an offering that is acceptable to God? It's where the Torah talks about the offerings that are acceptable. You're doing what? The things that are blameless, certain things, certain ages. You don't just bring anything. You bring that which is special, that which is set aside, that which is designated. Bring the best. Pay attention to what it is you're doing. And you see later on the prophets rail against people that are just bringing whatever. Yeah, just bringing whatever. The sick things that they, they, they didn't have value agriculturally, so uh, let's just slough it off to the, to the tabernacle or the temple. Like, no, you're kind of losing the perspective of where all these things are. And, you know, you think of if you actually have a a decent relationship with your parents, obviously there's parent-child relationships that have gone downhill and things have broken trust and such that have made things a huge problem. But if there's a good relationship between parent and child, would the child bring just you know, stuff that you just otherwise, let's see, uh, I can't throw it away, the recycling center won't take it, well, I'll just give it to mom. No, we don't treat mom, we don't treat dad like that, you don't just give them junk, because why? They're the source of where you come from, and you respect their leadership and respect they are the ones where you come from. So thus, you bring the best, the things that they like. Uh, Yes, uh, Larilla, go ahead, please.
1: I know this sounds weird, but um, my family was looking for a new church, and we had our choice of a couple. We picked the one with the matching silverware.
0: The matching silverware.
1: Because we felt like, Instead of getting the leftover whatever that was in your kitchen when you re- were remodeling, this church actually bought matching silverware. Mm. They bought matching plates. They gave the first ten percent, not the last ten percent, mm. and that was very significant to us.
0: Mm. Interesting. Yes. So one of the other things I hope you recognize in this passage here from Romans twelve one and two. Also, is that it says, okay, spiritual act of service, and do not be conformed to this world. Remember again, the whole tabernacle. You're coming from the world, out of the world towards what? The dwelling place of God. Okay, so don't be conformed, dragging the world along with you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that sound like? Washing almost sounds like the new covenant doesn't it in jeremiah chapter thirty one verses thirty one to thirty four a new heart, and then the the second witness there in ezekiel thirty six give you a new spirit, put the spirit of God within you, so that renewing of your your mind get, beginning a new mind a new heart that is the promise and that is the goal and with the new covenant prophecy why does Israel need a new heart I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel the house of Yaakov after those days not like what not like back in the days yes My covenant, which they held up to the nth degree. No, which they broke, even though I was like a husband to them. So you're saying, okay, they're at Sinai, brought them out. I wanted to be a family so us can be together. Presented, revealed myself, who I am, and they said, golden calf okay, so now we're going to have to really work on this. There has to be a transformation. And then you see like in Deuteronomy about the circumcising of your heart, a continual process. That first generation has to die off. Second generation, they're the ones who are going to be able to go into the land. So thus with us, our first generation of ourselves you know, Jeff 1.0 has got to die off so that with the Lord, Jeff 2.0, the, the upgrade. So thus, we should be looking to say, just like with bringing the best into the tabernacle, we just don't come as Jeff 1.0. We come as Jeff 2.0. But is that transformation that is really going to work in heaven's eyes going to be something that we can affect ourselves? No. Uh, yes, uh, Christine, go go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Ezekiel or Jeremiah where you he talked about pouring out his spirit in order for us to walk in his statue and his ways. So without the you know, working of the Holy Spirit in all of its full dimensions, are we going to be able to make any kind of transformation and refine our soul to be more in the way of Yeshua? You know, I remember when the uh, we were always kind of taught that we could boldly go before the yeah. throne. And I'm like, no, you know, it wasn't until this type of learning and uh, really evaluating uh, the closer and you've, you know, spoken, and Daniel's spoken on it, uh, the closer that we are to the throne, the holier we have to be, you know, and and then oftentimes in a day I'll ask myself, am I going to be just a spectator at the bottom of the mountain, or do I want to learn the ways of, you know, putting my beastie soul nature to death and working on walking in the way to refine my soul so that I become less and less and larger as the temple is larger. But uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit, I, it's, I can do nothing.
0: Yeah, like, and that's the, one of the, when we were going through the um, Romans, we, we see that in particular there in Romans chapter 7. Because Romans chapter 7, that's where you see that uh, Paul is talking about when I encountered the law. What happened? I died. I died. And you see it ending is like, is there any hope for me? Who can save me from this body of death? Romans chapter 8 what is that all about? The work of the Spirit of God that makes it work. So, thus, you see the new covenant that's always promised through Israel is fulfilled in that. The laws of God show us um, you're not going to get there from where you are at right now. It is like the picture of the tabernacle. You are standing outside the tabernacle. There is no other way in than going in through the door. Okay, that is where you're faced up with. Okay, how do I get through the door? That's right. You're not by yourself as you are. You are come face to face with saying, I don't measure up to this. How can I go in myself? You need to be transformed. Just like when you go into the tabernacle or temple, you encounter the altar. You need to be transformed. Your gift, the gift, the offering of all the assembly, that is what travels on beyond you, beyond the whole assembly into the presence of God. But we ourselves just don't waltz in. So thus we'll kind of see, see as, we, as we close out here um, passage from Ezekiel 43. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell among the sons of Israel forever. So it's a very interesting thing when we talk about this being the place where the Lord is dwelling. The Targum, as we've discussed in times past, uh, Targum are the Aramaic uh, translations of the large portions of the hebrew scriptures but they're also with the the sermons uh, thrown into the midst of them so you're getting basically what the people actually thought about and uh, the homilies uh, intermixed in there with the translation itself so thus you should always read the targums in companion with (laughs) the original hebrew or the uh, direct english translation because if you were to just take the english translation of the targums you'll uh yeah it's just a lot of um commentary added onto it but you get the picture of what the people were thinking with this where you know you get the ideas that people will put forward saying well um the apostles were playing fast and loose with the tanakh or the the hebrew scriptures you know writing yeshua in all over everywhere well the thing is with the targums you're seeing that they're getting the same ideas about these scriptures as the apostles did. So when you see, like, the Targum rendering of Isaiah, or Ezekiel 43 7, it says, You know, he said to me, Son of Adam, this is the place of the abode of my glorious throne, and this is the place of the abode of the habitation of my Shekhinah, where my Shekhinah dwells amongst the children of Israel forever. So, thus you've seen the soles of my feet has come the uh, habitation of my Shekhinah. So, my Shekhinah, the Shekhinah is uh, the dwelling. It's it's a word in Hebrew that means dwelling, because uh, Shekhan is uh to dwell somewhere, to live somewhere. So Shekhinah became a intertestamental and rabbinical writings word for the presence of God. But the problem is, is that when you are dealing with these appearances of the presence of God, like we saw with um, God having lunch with the elders of Israel up on the mountain, we just saw that in a previous Torah passage, that's where the Shekhinah comes in as the place word to this because the conception of god being so far removed almost like on a platonic uh, view of it that so far removed from humanity that there is never any interaction whatsoever thus you had to have an intermediary of the shekhinah and also came in with the memra or the word is the, is the aramaic word for memra of that being the presence of the Lord versus the presence of the Lord himself. But when we see also the Septuagint rendering of this, uh, Ezekiel 43.7, And he said to me, You have seen, Son of Man, the place of my throne and the place of the print of my feet. My name shall encamp in the midst of the house of Israel forever. So, instead of I will dwell, it's like my name shall encamp, and rather than the soles of my feet, is the place of the print of my feet. So, even with the Septuagint, which is 300 to 100 BC, roughly, that even still, you're trying to come up with a circumlocution or a way to say around it without saying, hey, God is here, saying, well, the print of the sole of his feet is here, or his Shekhinah is here, or his Memra is here, rather than he himself actually dwelling. Thus you're saying that the tabernacle is all about Messiah. Because what do we see in John chapter 1? Yes, but he's saying that I will tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled it's the same word that's used in the Septuagint for the tabernacle. He will pitch his tabernacle in the midst of the people. Thus, you see the picture of Messiah is wrapped up in and being the embodiment of the tabernacle and the original that you would see shown upon the mountain. And it shouldn't surprise us because we've been seeing this Message passing from the garden through Noah, down to Abraham, down through Jacob and down through Yosef and Yehuda, that this was going to be that avenue that heaven was reconnecting with Earth, reconciling all of humanity back to the creator of heaven and earth. Yes. The
1: illustration for these interpretations. What were you? Sorry, what was the purpose of showing us the Targamon and then the Septuagint?
0: The tabernacle. Okay. When it's talking about
1: the sorry. passage,
0: the yeah. why of the tabernacle, Exodus 25, 8 through 9, that I may dwell among them.
1: Okay. So but the you purpose should... of
0: the tabernacle is the Lord was dwelling in the mountain. Now he's dwelling between, above the Kapparot. The covering between the cherubim. So was the, the targum
1: and the Septuagint different translations, meaning the same thing, or it was derivative? of? People? These are like
0: the Think understandings thinking. of the people who are writing those, saying, "Okay, we've read what it says. This is how we understand it." But the understanding of it is like the Hebrew text is saying, "I will dwell." But they're like, oh, that's a bit much. You're talking about the Lord himself dwelling here. That's a bit much. So we're going to remove it back a little bit and say, it's his Shechina that's dwelling there. Or it's the print of the soles of his seat dwelling there. Because the idea of actually heaven and earth, heaven coming to earth, that's being anathema, of some of these people who are writing in the before the bc period and that those ad period in which the targums were written but we see that the reality of it in the pattern has been flowing through that yes he is wanting to dwell and he said that very specifically he wants to dwell amongst his people And the ultimate fulfillment of that, of the tabernacle and the dwelling place of God, is in the Mashiach. And that we join with the Mashiach. Just like we go outside the gate to the Mashiach. That's where we are seeking to go. To seek to join him in his death that's being the great promise of heaven that we are considered death or dead jeff 1.0 is considered dead so that jeff 2.0 can be rebooted by heaven and then said, okay you are raised up as jeff 2.0 and that being the great lesson of it yes uh go ahead sean
1: Hello, testing. Okay. Now, I just thought it was interesting, the, uh, the people that say that it's anathema about him dwelling amongst us here on earth, you know, the ones that put God in a box, I mean, take him out of the box, he can do that.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, is to, rather than saying what God can't do, listen to what he says he did do. And he will do. That's, that's one of those things, because people will say, well, it couldn't be this because of this. We'll just say what it says he did, and put it together, and say, that is the totality of what's revealed that he's doing and he will do, rather than saying, well, it says that, but it can't be that because of what I think it should say. Uh, yes, uh, Larry, go, go ahead. A little bit like you're saying that they're, they're thinking he's trying to tell them that they're going to put a gallon jug into a quart jar. Yes, and... Heaven's response is, don't worry about that. Don't, I said I'm going to do it. Don't worry about how that happens. Just leave that as the mystery, but just say, heaven yes. is going to do this, dwell amongst mankind. How is that possible? That the creator of heaven and earth even shows up on a mountain and then shows up here above the cherubim the there in the Ark of the Testimony. Has that happened? I don't know. How does the creator decide to appear in one particular place? Don't know. How does the creator decide to appear in the Messiah? Don't know. He says that's the way it's going to happen. And that is the pattern that is being shown throughout from the garden all the way down through the Torah, through the prophets, and say, oh, okay, this is how it's working out. So that's we're talking about uh, things that require a little bit more study. Uh, maybe Hebrews. We're currently going through Galatians right now. Maybe Hebrews would be the place to go next. Around around the time of uh, Yom Kippur, we often will go through, uh, take a take a a fast tour through. Hebrews, but um, it's something that maybe requires a a lot more investigation and some closer, um, slower methodical uh, taking a look through. Because, yes, the the letter to the Hebrews is one that really helps you understand a lot of what the the tabernacle service is all about, and especially the uh, Yom Kippur service and what that is all about.